It was the summer of love, 1967. Seattle was simultaneously the center of the known universe and on the very edge of something spectacular. Seattle's own Jimi Hendrix just released his second album. The city had its first being, a protest to mourn the loss of a coffee shop and bookstore beloved by the peace, love, and happiness crowd. So Seattle. And the nightly carnival at Seattle's center still held the shimmer of excitement that first arose during the building of the Space Needle for the World's Fair. It was an excitement that would have been intoxicating for a young woman from Spokane who just moved to the big city. Someone like Susan Galvin. At 20 years old, she left her family home in Spokane just a few months earlier, landing a job as a records clerk for the Seattle Police Department. It was the graveyard shift. She didn't seem to mind the late night walk to work. She was new in town and glad to have found steady employment, a respectable job at that, which also afforded Susan plenty of free time to do what she enjoyed best, hanging out with friends at Seattle Center. There were carnival rides, games of chance, food and music from all over the world even a clown who was hired to saunter the 74-acre grounds, making balloon animals and keeping everyone smiling. Susan lived just a few blocks away. In fact, she was such a regular at the downtown venue, she'd become friends with the clown and was seen walking around with him on several occasions, possibly even holding hands. The last time they were seen together was just hours before Susan's disappearance on a warm summer night in July. Her body would be found days later in an elevator at Seattle Center. Susan had been attacked and strangled, and the clown had abruptly quit without explanation. When I started working the case in 2016, you know, the first thing I started doing is going through and saying, hey, who looked the most suspicious? Who were the initial detectives hottest on? And the Seattle Center clown was at the top of the list. But it was all just a hunch, feeling that something sinister was hiding behind that painted smile. Without any real evidence or witnesses, the case went cold. It was more than 50 years later when new scientific techniques and a citizen sleuth with a tenacious appetite for justice would finally give Susan's family the answers they'd been searching for for so many years. We were just very lucky that the original crime scene investigators were forward-thinking enough that they collected this evidence and kept it because they never could have known at that time what it would mean in the future. Was it Punchy the Clown? Were they right all those years ago? Had the killer slipped through their fingers? I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. So Kim, the Space Needle is so iconic. You look at it, and even for those of us who live in or near Seattle, it's it's almost like Mount Rainier. It feels like it's just always been there. But then, as you captured in your scene setter, 
The Space Needle was really born out of this really exciting time at the Seattle's World Fair. It showcased in 1962 that possibility was really only limited by our creativity. Super exciting time, the future, technological advances, science, space exploration, and it was cool. Even Elvis, I don't know if you know this, but the king of rock and roll wanted a taste of that excitement shooting the film. It happened at the World's Fair. And I could just picture, Kim, Susan Galvin in 1967, a young woman being swept up in that excitement. You know, she really must have felt like anything was possible. So for this case, we got a chance to speak with a citizen sleuth who has become an internationally recognized expert on genetic genealogy, Cece Moore. We also tapped the experience of Seattle detective Rolf Norton. Now, even though this case was from 1967, Detective Norton says he would not call it a cold case. What's your definition of cold case? So I always ask that because I'm not a big fan of that term. The term was created actually down in Miami by the media to talk about some of the work they were doing on older cases. But, you know, the thing about to me is that sometimes it can give a value judgment on the type of evidence or strength of evidence you have in a case and also maybe make a statement on whether you're actually actively working it. Because I could tell you that, like, I have a case from July of this summer. It's cold. I've already been dead ended and it's really frustrating. Well, Susan Galvin's case from 1967, I don't know that I would ever call it a cold case because throughout the generations of different detectives, people still continue to work it. And over time, some huge breaks were made. So as I mentioned, Susan Galvin was 20 years old in 1967, and she was new to Seattle. She was the oldest of eight children. And her brother, Larry, described Seattle back in that era for people that live in Spokane as the end of the rainbow. You know, that's where opportunity was. It's where the big city was. And, you know, she, at a a very young age, left her family and and moved west. She was doing great here. She had her own apartment. Um, She got a a steady job. She had an active social life. The World's Fair in Seattle had occurred uh, just a few years earlier where they built the Space Needle and this kind of social hub in downtown Seattle called Seattle Center. And in that era, that was the place to go for young people. Um, You would go there, you would ride rides, you would just hang out and socialize. It really was kind of the, the fulcrum of Seattle social activity. And Susan would go there nearly every weekend with her friends, hanging out, talking to boys. She only lived three blocks away from the Seattle Center, so um, it was just essentially right in her backyard. And I went back and looked at a lot of stock videos from this era at Seattle Center, 1967, and, you know, the the years around there. And it it was so interesting to see. I mean, it really was a carnival-like atmosphere. There were booths set up all over the place, outside and inside. There were games. There was a clown that would walk around. There were, you know, all kinds of places to get different kinds of food. There were exhibits from all over the world. A lot of things that were at the World's Fair kind of stayed for a long time afterward. And so there was really this international festival type feel to Seattle Center every single weekend. Yeah, and it stayed that way for a really long time. The Space Needle was like so exciting. I remember going up the first time. I mean, there was a picture of my sister and I. I mean, it was such an ev- such an event and it was a very carnival type atmosphere and it was a real treat to go there and they had the, you know, the Matterhorn, I think it was called, and we'd go on it. And it was just a really fun place to be. But I really am feeling like Susan is such a 
20 years old, leaving small city of Spokane for the big city of Seattle. Like, it's so exciting for her. And and yet we know something tragic is going to happen. And it's really, you know, your heart just kind of aches for that, you know, experience that she was, her life was just beginning. It and, was. And, and she was one of those kids who was, you know, the eldest of many children. And so she would often take care of her younger siblings. Mm-hmm. And this was her first opportunity to really spread her wings and be her own person and just focus on her own life. Yeah. She'd only had a few months to do that. Every evening, just before midnight, she would leave her apartment on Queen Anne, walk a few blocks to Seattle Center. She would go up in an elevator that was in one of the garages at the center to get to a walkway over the road because on the other side of the road was the headquarters of the Seattle Police Department and the Records Department where she worked as a clerk. It might seem surprising that a young single woman would be out alone at night in downtown Seattle in the 60s, but Detective Norton says things really were different back then. I would say Seattle Center was a fairly innocent place at that point. You know, the the rough areas in Seattle in 1967 were really in Skid Row, which is Pioneer Square, and, you know, around the area of First and Pike. There was a lot going on there. But Seattle Center, I would say less so. And so I think during that time, people wouldn't be shocked to hear that, you know, someone like Susan was making her way to work going through that area. At the same token, uh, you know, her coworkers did kind of look at her as somewhat fearless in the sense that, hey, it's the middle of the night, she would walk around by herself, and she didn't seem overly concerned about that. It was midnight on July 10th, 1967, when her coworkers first noticed there was something very wrong. The normally punctual Susan hadn't shown up for work. She hadn't called either. And when she again didn't show up the following day, they called the police to report Susan missing. One more day passed, and they discovered Susan's body in the elevator of the parking garage at Seattle Center. Detective Norton says it had apparently been there for several days. During this time period from July 9th through the 13th, the Seattle Center parking garage was shut down. Okay, There was nothing going on at the Seattle Center, and if there wasn't any events, they would lock the place up. And on the evening of July 13th, they opened it up for uh, an event at, at one of the buildings. And about 6.40 in the evening, the parking garage attendant opened the elevators and found Susan deceased in elevator number one. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Although they found her on a Thursday, July 13th, they believe the attack happened on July 9th, the Sunday before. The scene was processed by detectives Aitken and Sands. And, you know, they processed that scene in 1967 like it was 2018. Uh, Fingerprints, experts were brought out. Her clothing was collected and preserved, they did a tremendous job. And, you know, that's one thing, looking back at the case 50 years later, that was so surprising is that we, we had evidence that we could do work with. And Detective Norton said it was really unusual for them to take as much care as they did with the crime scene to collect as much evidence as they did. He mentioned that, you know, nowadays the coroner has sort of a checklist of things that they need to do before they remove the body from the scene, evidence they need to collect. That wasn't the case back then. They sort of just did, you know, what they felt was necessary, but there wasn't any really specific requirements of what they needed to do. And so the clothing wasn't always kept 
Mm-hmm. They didn't always look for fingerprints, things like that. But in this case, they did every single thing they could possibly do to get any little scrap of evidence. And I wonder how much, um, and this is not to be critical, but because this was one of their own. Yeah. I and mean, she was a records clerk. You know, and then on top of that, you know, coming from the small town to the big city and you see this and it's like, you know, not a lot of crime happening in Seattle in that place. I mean, it was probably, you know, devastating, you know, to find this young woman her life cut so short, they wanted to get it right, clearly. And imagine, you know, this is a family-friendly place. <laughs> this is somewhere people bring their kids on the weekend thinking that it is a family-friendly atmosphere. If you find out that there's been a rape and murder there, I mean, that startled yeah. the city. It really did. Yeah. But who could have committed such a vicious attack? Susan was well-liked didn't seem to have any enemies. As Detective Norton said, she had lots of friends. She would regularly meet up with them at Seattle Center. The cops thought maybe there was some kind of love triangle involved. Susan had been on a date with a couple of sailors the week before. It was actually a double date with one of her friends. The detectives on the case hopped on a ferry in the middle of the night, the night that Susan's body was found, and they went out to the USS Gompers where those sailors were stationed. But... They both passed a polygraph. They both had solid alibis. These weren't their guys. There was also an ex-boyfriend from Spokane who had recently been arrested for being under the influence of LSD in Seattle. Susan had actually come across his arrest report in her job, and her coworkers say she was shocked. But when detectives talked with him, again, he had an alibi. They were able to verify that, and he was cleared. Investigators decided to start asking around her friends and folks that worked at Seattle Center and at the police department. Who had they seen Susan hanging out with? Several people told investigators that she had been seen hanging out with the clown at Seattle Center on several occasions, including the weekend of her murder. So the Seattle Center had the the fun force, which was the amusement ride area. And then it had a food circus, which is a place to, to get food and sit and eat and socialize. And the clown was employed by the Seattle Center to entertain kids, to make the rounds, yeah, to sell trinkets, to just be present in what I would call a, a carnival atmosphere. And it wasn't just on weekends. He worked there on most days. So this is a, a clown in the classic sense, all dressed up with makeup and big shoes and all of that. Now, a lot of people have a really strong reaction to clowns. I mean, they're supposed to be the symbol of fun, but for a lot of people, those painted faces and unpredictable behavior can be really unsettling, if not downright scary. I mean, this is why we have movies like It. The fear of clowns is called cholerophobia, and it does have a reasonable psychological basis. According to experts, all the makeup can make it really hard to discern what a clown is really thinking. You can't read their facial expressions. Is he frowning underneath that painted smile? There's also the distorted nature of the makeup, the giant eyebrows, the unnatural grin or frown, and the unpredictable nature of their behavior. So it's nearly impossible to read a clown. You can't read their body language or their facial expressions like you would any normal person. And, you know, it can make you wonder, like, is that clown going to come over here and hand me that bouquet of flowers? Or is there a hidden water spout I'm going to get squirted in the face? Like, you just don't know what to expect. Well, and a clown who tries to pick up on a young woman, I mean, it's just like, how does that work? Like, how? What was that pickup line like? I mean, have you ever had a clown try to be like, hey, how you doing there? <laughs> I can't say I mean, that I have. I mean, and I'm not like upset that that hasn't happened. I mean, it just seems like clowns, you know, should stay in their lane when they're in, <laughs> their, in their, lane. <laughs> their clown 
sense. Like, I can't picture her walking around pot potentially holding hands. On the flip side of that, you know, it could be totally harmless. And it's just a friendly clown, you know? And this clown at Seattle Center apparently went by the nickname Punchy the Clown. Mm -hmm. So Susan knew him just from hanging out there all the time. On the weekend of her death, a lot of people say they saw them walking around together holding hands like they were on a date. Yeah, that that's that would be my first knock on the door if I was an investigator. Uh, so maybe that's saying something about my feeling of of clowns. Well, it's not just you. I mean, in this case of Susan Galvin's murder, even the detectives were really unsettled by the clown's behavior. They identified the clown, and then they found out immediately that the Seattle Center clown had abruptly quit his job within two days after Susan was found. So they brought him in for questioning, and he was somewhat problematic. He was aloof. He did not seem like he was taking the process seriously, kind of deflecting questions. And he ultimately was given a polygraph examination. And while he did not fail it, his results were deemed inconclusive. But they had no evidence. There was no proof the clown had anything to do with the rape and murder of Susan Galvin. So they had to let him go. Over the years, it was an on-again, off-again investigation. In 2002, another team of cold case detectives took the evidence out of the vault. They sent all her clothing to the state crime lab to see if there was anything they could extract from it. And sure enough, the underwear that was collected back in 1967, a crime lab technician was able to find male DNA on it. They even created a genetic profile for their suspect, but there were no matches in the law enforcement database. Again, the case was sent to the back burner for more than a decade until Detective Norton came onto the scene. I inherited an office full of murder books and case files and, and just was grabbing the ones that were closest to the death, thinking, okay, this is, this is here. There must be a reason why it's here. And one of our Admin employees in homicide, Leslie Thornburg, she stopped me one day and said, hey, what do you know about a Seattle police records clerk that was murdered in the late 1960s? And I told Leslie, I know nothing about that. I've never heard of it. And she said, yeah, I, it was before Leslie had been hired even, but it was a story that I think certainly had been shared through generations of admin employees. And Leslie said, well, I don't think it's ever been solved, but people people still talk about it. And I was just curious if you would run across it. So I tracked down the case. It was in a vault, a storage area a few floors down from me, and pulled it out and started reading. He wanted to start where the previous investigators had left off, who they were hot on for this case. Now that they had this DNA profile, maybe they'd be able to match the profile with one of those suspects from 1967. We had the suspect identified by a genetic code. We just didn't know his name. So I just started going through all the names in the murder book saying, okay, who's available? Is there anyone here where there's probable cause for me to get a warrant? What can I do to match specific individuals to this profile that we have here at WSP? And, you know, the first person that jumped out was the Seattle Center clown. So I got a search warrant to collect his DNA. I located him in Salt Lake City. Uh, and I flew down there and with the assistance of Salt Lake City PD. We served the warrant, collected his DNA, and I re-interviewed him. With the help of that DNA test, though, the clown was cleared nearly 50 years after he was initially questioned by police. Could you imagine being a person of interest in a murder rape for 50 years? Well, what's even more incredible is he wasn't a match and how right? much he 
like looked like he was guilty. He didn't act the way that he should have acted. But that's the whole thing that gets me. It's like how you should and shouldn't act. And but some then people, why did he lie about knowing her? That's the weird thing to me. It's like he lied about even knowing her. Why would you do that? Because I think that when you're being interrogated against, I mean, and I don't know, like I've never been interrogated for a rape murder. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> but I mean, you, I can't even imagine that kind of pressure. Maybe and, you just want to distance yourself in any way possible from that. Yeah, because I, I don't know. I think that there's no playbook by which, you know, you should be telling the truth. But then I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's I think people do it all the time. And that's the problem where it's like they look good for something. How many times have we seen they're good for it and they didn't have anything to do with it? And that's what's so great about DNA and genetic genealogy exonerating people who had nothing to do with crimes that they've been in prison for decades for. Mm-hmm. Well, Norton says he didn't fault the initial investigators for setting their sights on this guy for so many years. Even decades later, he says he just didn't act like an innocent man. And I'm glad that we had the science where we were able to say either way. I'm glad that we had that science so we could say, hey, he's not involved. Because even when I interviewed him in 2016, he behaved suspiciously. He denied knowing or having any relationship with Susan. And we believe that wasn't true. So the one good suspect was cleared. Now what? A couple of years after Norton first got the case, in 2018, the Golden State Killer case was finally solved with the help of genetic genealogy. And just a few months ago in June, 74-year-old Joseph D'Angelo pleaded guilty to the rape and murder of 13 women in the 70s and 80s. He's believed to have had dozens of other victims as well. Detective Norton heard about that case in the news and he wondered, could that technique be used to identify Susan's killer as well? So he reached out to C.C. Moore, a citizen scientist who turned her hobby into a career and became one of the world's leading experts on genetic genealogy. I'm C.C. Moore. I'm the chief genetic genealogist for Parabon Nanolabs. I'm also the longtime genetic genealogist on the PBS TV series Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. And I'm the founder of the DNA Detectives, have a huge Facebook group for people looking to use their DNA to solve family mysteries. We have about 150,000 members now. And I am co-founder of the Institute for Genetic Genealogy, which focuses on educating about genetic genealogy. And we typically have an annual conference. Um, that's some of the things I do. There's others, but those are <laughs> just a few. Primary. Just a few. She, we had so much fun talking to her, interviewing her. I mean, she is incredible yeah, she on has many different levels. Such an interesting story about how she started researching her own family tree and wound up becoming this world-renowned expert. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more in our next Deepish Thoughts. So keep an eye out for that because Cece really is amazing. But Right now, let's stick with her work on the Susan Galvin case and the online genetic database that she used called GEDmatch. This case did not have great matches in GEDmatch. And I'll explain real quickly what happens. We upload that genotype data file. So those hundreds of thousands of genetic markers in this file are uploaded to GEDmatch. GEDmatch then compares them against everyone else who's in that database. So about 900,000 people or so are compared against it, we're looking for people that share significant amounts of DNA with this unknown suspect. And for us, significant could be 1%. That's about a third cousin. Hmm. But you're, it depends on luck. It depends on population group. It just depends on whether someone's cousins have tested on what you're going to get. 
So all these DNA profiles from from all over the place come from people who have uploaded their information. After they've done services like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA, some people will then you know get that information, their DNA results back, and then choose to upload it to GEDmatch. Because the 23andMe and the Ancestry DNA, they don't communicate with each other. They're right. like, we don't want, you can't have that, we can't show you yours, and you can't show us ours. So people then take their genetic profile and upload it into GEDmatch. Right, and it's when people want to you know help identify their lineage, look for long lost relatives, but it is used by law enforcement as well. We were just very lucky that the original crime scene investigators were forward thinking enough that they collected this evidence and kept it because they never could have known at that time what it would mean in the future. And Cece says they didn't get a solid match for the DNA in the Susan Galvin case. They did get two very distant matches, like third cousins or more removed. But that left a lot of room for error in whittling it down to one suspect. And that's where Cece works her magic. What ended up being key in this case is we get these matches, these people who share DNA, but we also can predict someone's ancestral origins. So where did their ancestors come from? In this case, we had about 16% Native American ancestry. And then we had about 43% Eastern European ancestry with the rest being the typical Northwest European ancestry that we're working with. And so that told me I not only had to find a relative of these top two matches, who's related to both of them, but that person has to have most likely a great grandparent who's fully Native American, and they need to have probably a parent who is Eastern European. And so I had to find a descendant of these matches ancestors who fit into that. So I was looking for someone who married someone with Native American ancestry, who married someone with Eastern European ancestry. And I could tell from the match list that the Eastern European was going to be Polish. So this reminds me of like genetic Sudoku. Yeah, that's exactly right. I say to people, I don't need to do Sudoku or crossword puzzles because that's what this is. And it's so much about putting the puzzle pieces together and it becomes less and less about the DNA. That starts us out. How much do two people share? What's the likely relationship? And then everything else is genealogy, building the trees, finding the common ancestors, finding the descendants, and then who's in the right place at the right time, right gender, right hair color, eye color, because we also get those predictions at Paramount. You know, who is most likely to be this contributor of this DNA, this unknown suspect? And in this case, it all came down only to one person who fit all the parameters to be that suspect. Detective Rolf Norton says he was shocked to get just one name. She wrote, and we believe the suspect is Frank Whippich. And I have to tell you, I was hoping to get a list of 100 names to go start knocking people out, you know, and just reaching out to them saying, hey, 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 do you mind? Can I get a swab? She was looking at one name, and it certainly wasn't uh, a done deal, but uh, it's not what I expected at all. It's so funny because, like, I totally get that mindset. Like, you're thinking, okay, I'm ready to dig into this. I got some names. You see one name, and it seems so random. I mean, I'm sure Frank Wibich wasn't even in the murder book. It wasn't. Like, it was nowhere to be found. nowhere to be found. So I can see that total, (laughs) and it it shows Cece's skill 
going through all the birth and death records, all the you know social media accounts, things like that, to get that one drill down to that one name. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, but as Cece and the detective would explain, this wasn't evidence they could use in court. This was just a lead, a very, very high likelihood that Frank Wibich was their guy, but they still had to get the evidence to actually prove it. I spent the weekend, uh, as soon as I got this report, going through the murder book again, every name. And I mean, there's hundreds, if not a thousand pages in, in his files, and Frank Wibich's name was not in there. They didn't know how he came to be in the same elevator as Susan Galvin. But they did have a little bit of information on Wibich. He was born in 1941, lived most of his life in Seattle. He had two kids. He had actually one child when this crime occurred. And he was working as a security guard somewhere in the area of the Seattle Center. So he wasn't even on their radar. But he wasn't even on their radar. He was 46 years old when he died in 1987 due to complications from diabetes. Detective Norton knew that the only way they were ever going to close this case was to ask for a DNA sample from one of those two children. One of the kids still happened to live nearby just a couple of hours outside of Seattle. I really had to sit back and say, how do you address this? How do you go contact someone and say, I'm investigating your father and I'm hoping you will give me a DNA sample so I can determine whether or not your father was involved in a murder from 50-some years ago. Would you be shocked to get that Talk kind of a Talk about a question? delicate conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think most people would, and I think it would immediately raise hackles. And on the one hand, you know, there's that instinct to protect your family. On the other hand, there's also the instinct to do the right thing. Right. So Detective Norton says he knew it was going to be a tough conversation, not something that you want to do over the phone. So he drove out to the place where Wibich's offspring lived. And for privacy, he doesn't want to identify that person. But the offspring wasn't home. So the detective tried again a few days later, driving for several hours to try and have this difficult conversation face to face. And during those long drives, he says he would try to rehearse what he would say and how he would say it. But eventually he realized there just wasn't going to be any way to make this conversation comfortable. And ultimately, I said, screw it. I'm not going to keep replaying a dialogue. I'm just going to get face to face with this person and just start talking. I still could never find anyone at the residence. I ended up locating a place of employment and just waited outside. And uh, the offspring ended up coming out late at night. And I just got out of the car, introduced myself, said, this is going to sound crazy, but I'm investigating a relative for a very violent crime that happened many decades ago, and I'm hoping to get your DNA to either confirm that your relative was involved or exclude your relative uh, from being involved. Are you willing to do that? And there was no hesitation. Um, The offspring said yes. That's incredible to me. Without hesitation to say yes. I think it says a couple of things. First of all, you're right. It's incredible. But another thing, too, is that, you know, maybe they didn't have a good relationship with the dad. Maybe they thought, you know. There was something there sketchy was happening. Something, yeah. You know, I think the harder question is, is if your dad was beloved and it was like this came out of left field. Would you do it? I think it'd be easier to say yes if if your dad was beloved because there would be this feeling of like there's no way in hell that my relative had done this. And so it'd be like, sure, take my DNA because it's just going to exonerate him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's one of those calls that y- you don't know what you're going to do. 
You don't know if you would do the right thing or if you would, you know, circle the wagons. But I really like it how the detective is being so careful, like to call the, you know, call the person offspring because he really wants to protect the identity of the person who came forward and said, yes, I will do that. And I think that's really, you know, it sounds weird to hear him say offspring, but I know that's what he's doing. Yeah, you I, know? Res- I respect his professionalism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it turned out that DNA was a match. I think we all saw that coming. <laughs> but this was just the first hurdle to be crossed toward closing the case. Again, they were still a little short of the finish line, that real hard evidence. So what we now have determined is that our murder suspect is related to this offspring. But is there a possibility there's another relative that we're not aware of? There's someone else in this family tree that's out there, right? We're not home plate yet as far as identifying Susan's killer without a doubt. The only way to firmly point the finger at their only remaining suspect was to match their genetic profile to the DNA of Frank Wibich himself. But he had died 30 years earlier. Their only option was to exhume his remains. Now, he had been buried since 1987. This is a very wet climate. Water and DNA do not mix well. We did not know what we were going to find. Uh, I fully expected to find a puddle of water and, you know, potentially be sifting through for whatever we could find. Uh, There was a very strong likelihood that we were not going to be successful in being able to find remains that would allow us to get a DNA profile. That is so gross. I mean, can, mm-hmm. are, can you, are you picturing it? I'm picturing it. Oh, I'm totally it. there. I'm like <laughs> at the gravesite right now. And I'm wondering, like, what what did, did he go and ask the family for permission? How did that go go about? So he did not ask the family for permission because he knew that if, if it was a match, that he would have news to share. If it was not a match, he would not have news to share. And to be honest, he just didn't want to burden them any more than he already had. Mm-hmm. So... What do you think about that? Well, so he took the DNA from the offspring, took it to a judge and said, you know, this should be enough for a search warrant. And the Mm -hmm. judge granted a search warrant without the family's permission because the detective just didn't want to drag them into it until he was absolutely certain that he had to. Yeah. I mean, in some cases where I've followed, they've gone and had the conversation with the family first, gotten their permission, then went and got the warrant. It's kind of one of those, like, I don't know, it's just one of a crunchy situation to begin with. But, you know, I I don't know. I just feel like the family should have had some say, but I can, I don't know. What do you think? I think it was fine the way that he handled it. I mean, it was so many years after Frank's death. It wasn't immediately following his death. This was decades later. Mm-hmm. And like he said, you know, if it turned out that there wasn't anything there that they could even match DNA with anyways, then there was nothing to report back. Yeah. And I could picture the conversation. Like if he went to the offspring and said, can I have permission to exhume your father who was buried 30 years earlier, that the offspring might say something like, what does that look like? What are you going to get out of that? Mm-hmm. And then that conversation how uncomfortable that might be. Yeah, but you know that he had to have thought about it because he's he went back and forth and back and yeah. forth to try to have a conversation. And the rel- they were really cool. Like, yes, no hesitation. I think it's just, it, it kind of, you know, removes the curtain a little bit to show it, it's kind of a a dance that detectives have to do with family members to respect them, but then also they want to solve the cold case. Right. And so you kind of go through these vacillations of like morality as you're doing the case. Uh, you know, anyway, it's just thoughts. 
Well, as you can imagine, there wasn't much of Frank left in that watery grave. His soft tissue had all but disappeared. But they were able to get enough DNA from a piece of bone, some bone marrow, actually, to finally and firmly identify the man who took Susan's life. Frank Whippich grew up in Seattle. He went to a secondary school for what was then called mentally handicapped students, and that's straight off their website. And it was a school that was purpose was to offer students training in vocational fields that wouldn't necessarily uh, be successful in, in traditional academic environments. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1960. He was stationed in New York, Alaska, and Germany. And he was married in the mid-60s, had two offspring, and then divorced in the early 70s when he was arrested and convicted for a felony theft. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but that sentence was reduced to nine months. At some point in the mid-70s, he was arrested for a weapons offense in Seattle. There's no record of the, the report wasn't kept, but uh, according to his family, the story that's been shared through the generations that he was arrested for impersonating a police officer and making traffic stops in his personal vehicle armed with a gun. Now, as far as we know, he wasn't ever arrested for any other violent or sexual crimes, but he did travel the world with the army. He was stationed all over the world. And so I would expect there's probably some open cases right now that are being reconsidered with Frank Wibich in mind because they now have his DNA in the database. Talk about, you know, flying under the radar, right? For for his entire life. Mm-hmm. I mean, he never had to pay the price for, for Susan's death. And I think that's one of the things, you know, people, you might say, oh, well, he didn't have to pay. You know, there's no justice in that way. But I think that these cold cases, solving them is giving criminals, you know, murderers, rapists, you know, second thought. Well, hopefully. like, Well, and especially now with this new technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they can solve a case from more than 50 years ago where the killer died 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You better watch your back. (laughs) Yeah. Expect a knock on the door. You know, don't be surprised, even if it's been decades, like you could hear that, you know, someone coming for you. So if there's a few other other killers and rapists who are not sleeping easy at night, Mm -hmm. that's probably okay. One other thing that uh, is really interesting about this case is just the people that we get to meet Mm -hmm. through doing these stories. Cece Moore is one of those who's sort of like a new idol of mine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's so inspiring in so many ways. One of which is the fact that, you know, she started out as this citizen scientist who didn't have any kind of educational background in doing genealogy or science at all. Mm -hmm. And yet now she's this this huge expert. So we talked to her a little bit about how that came to be. It started with my own family. And originally it was just because my niece was getting married. And I was thinking, oh, what would be an interesting, unique gift? And I thought, well, a family tree, right? That was way back in like 1999. And genetic genealogy really started in 2000. So it was pretty early in my interest. And once I dove into genealogy, there was no way the family tree was going to be done in time for her wedding. That just wasn't going to happen. It's still not done. (laughs) And part of the reason she says that, you know, she was never able to finish that is because all of a sudden, you know, as she was talking about her work and what she was able to discover about her own family, people started coming out of the woodwork asking for her help. So it started with my own, but very quickly people started coming to me and asking me for help with things that were much more life-changing than me discovering my unknown great-great-grandfather. You know, these are people that needed to know who their birth parents were initially. 
Um, a lot of people took DNA tests when these tests were first introduced and learned that their father was not who they thought it was. Mm. And you can imagine how you know emotional and devastating that could be for some people. And then, you know, from there, she started getting contacted by law enforcement to start working on cold cases. And Cece said, you know, sometimes it can be intimidating because she'll be like on an expert panel at some law enforcement conference with these people who have, you know, 16 letters after their name because of all of their doctorates. And she's like, you know, I'm just Cece. But yeah. she's so amazing and, and has so much experience and knowledge and is so good at putting these puzzles together. But when we were talking to her, one of the things that I loved about what she said was that she started marketing herself as an expert. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of and a lot of women, you know, they don't market themselves as being an expert. That was what kind of turned the corner for her is that she had been putting so much time into it and she was so good at it. And so she started seeing the results of that and she was helping people. So I think that it's a real I think that's one of the reasons why we really connected with her was just this idea of, you know what, I don't care what anybody says. I know that I'm really good at this. And the proof is in the pudding. She has yeah. solved so many crimes. If you look at her bio, go to her Wikipedia page, CC Moore, and it shows all of the cold cases that she has had a hand in. And it's a, it's amazing. And we're going to have more with CC. We're going to do a whole deepish thought with a lot more of our conversation about you know how she got where she is, what it was like as a woman in her 40s and 50s to embark on this whole new career and then have so much success with it. I mean, it's just, it's a really inspiring story. So I hope you'll keep an eye out for that. Yes. So Carolyn, what's coming up for next week? Next week, I'm going to share a murder that shocked the nation back in 1944, nearing the end of World War II, when an Italian prisoner of war was lynched mm. at Fort Lawton Army Base in Seattle. Now, despite zero evidence linking them to the killing, three African-American soldiers were charged with first-degree murder and 40 other black soldiers received lesser charges, and it was all a cover-up. Wow. All right, looking forward to that one. That's Carolyn Osorio. I'm Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>